So we've got just what to me is an amazing, amazing study before us. We have the study of the Word and the things that take place in Acts chapter 17. We also have what has been considered by some to be the finest sermon Paul ever preached. We get to cover both tonight. I'll teach, Paul will preach. I'm not going to take any less time than I normally do, so however long we go, it depends on Paul. And I just want to echo Father what Les prayed, and I agree with him, and we just ask your Holy Spirit now to teach as we listen, to speak to this fellowship in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, Acts chapter 17. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Now, let me just point out quickly that Luke stays back in Philippi. So going on into chapter 17, the we has changed to a they. Luke is now speaking about they went on, they go to Thessalonica, that is Silas and Timothy and Paul. Now we'll see further down in verse 14 that Silas and Timothy will then stay back at Berea. So we've got, we've got Luke at Philippi, Silas and, and uh, Timothy at Berea, but Paul presses on. And if I was going to entitle anything uh, of this teaching tonight, I would call it that. Paul presses on. Paul presses on. Like the legendary 19th century Scottish missionary, David Livingstone. Paul presses on. Now, David Livingstone was once asked, where are you willing to go? And he answered, I will go anywhere as long as it be forward. I like that. I will go anywhere as long as it be forward. Paul In Philippians 3.14 said, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He said, forgetting what lies behind. I press on. And it is so much of the nature of the Apostle Paul that he is one who presses on. Now he's going further deep into Europe, further west. And he arrives at the city of Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is he, the Christ. Now, get that picture. He's in the synagogue. Why the synagogue? He goes first to the Jew and then to the Greek. He goes to the Jewish people because, you know, they have a foundation of faith from which he can work, with with which he can work, from which he can build. The foundation of the Hebrew Scriptures, and he can go right to them. As we've shared so many times, Isaiah 53, Psalm uh, 22, Daniel chapter 9. And numerous other places, prophecies, over 300 of the first coming of Christ and and several hundred more of the second coming of Christ, Paul could go to the Hebrew Scriptures and speak to the Jewish people about Mashiach. And when you see Christ, that's just the Greek phraseology, Christos, of Mashiach, the Messiah. So he goes proclaiming Messiah. He, He presses on. But before we go any further here, you got to ask the question, how does he do it? How 
do you plant a church in three Sabbaths? Five weeks on the outset, that's if he arrived just after Sabbath and left just before Sabbath, which he probably wouldn't have done. Three Sabbaths. Three, maybe four weeks in Thessalonica, and he plants a church. Verse 4 says, Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So some Jews believe, accept the truth. Some of the Greeks, a large number, and the women, they're gathering together. The church is formed via the teaching of Paul. But I can't even imagine. Now, now the bridge started in three weeks. From calling to first Bible study was about three weeks. I mean, it happened that fast. Maybe four. Okay, we'll go four. But still, that could be within three Shabbats. Three Sabbaths. It started that quickly, but it took a long time to to lay foundation for the gospel to begin to, to spread out. Paul did it three weeks. How do you do that? Let me give you three things to note. One thing for each week. (laughs) First off, Paul reasoned with evidence. He reasoned with evidence. Note that it says that he was with them for three Sabbaths. Verse 2, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. I like that. Because you know, the Gospel is both reasonable and evidentiary. It is based in fact and in truth and in evidence. It is a reasonable good news. Paul would later write to the church at Corinth, chapter 15, verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And as I said a few moments ago, Paul and I actually were talking on Sunday, and he said, would you consider that to be the Gospel, 1 Corinthians 15? He said, I mean, if you were going to just nail it down, is that the Gospel? Or would it be John 3.16? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Is that the Gospel? Listen, the Gospel is not a formula. It's not a single verse to be memorized because you could say 1 Corinthians 15 or you could say John 3.16 or you could say any number of verses, any number of scriptures could, could be the gospel. The gospel is simply the good news and the good news is God loves us. And the good news is He loved us so much that He would come to this earth and die for us and resurrect, breaking the bars of death that we might resurrect as well, all to His glory, the gospel, the good news. It's not just a single verse we memorize. The the Bible isn't a collection of clever commercial jingles. It is the good news. And it's reasonable and it's evidentiary. Now a reasonable person would say, well then why do you need faith? If it's so based in fact, if it's such a reasonable amount of good news, if it's based on the evidence, what do you need faith for? Well, because without faith it is impossible to please Him. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Well, that doesn't answer the question, someone might say. That just tells us that God wants you to have faith. Why must you have faith if there's so much evidence out there? Listen, faith is not unreasonable. Faith is not irrational. 
It is, in fact, evidentiary. But faith is not required because the evidence is lacking. Please understand, faith is required because it reveals the heart. Faith is required because it shows not only the Lord, but us, where our hearts are. It shows a willing desire to love and trust in God. No evidence can do that. Now it was evident, I'm going to embarrass my wife for just a moment, but it was evident to me that she was good looking. (laughs) All the evidence was there. The facts were before me. But there's a difference between being a high school boy looking at a girl and going, hey, she's cute, and giving your heart to her. And it's the same with faith. Faith is giving your heart to God. Faith is saying, okay, Lord, I I get all the evidence, I understand all this truth, but the reality is I just want to love you. I want to give my heart to you. And it's why we have Bible scholars and theologians and professors who don't believe. They have all the evidence, but they have just not chosen to give their heart to God. They have not chosen to put their trust in Him. That's faith. The evidence is here, but the faith shows the heart. Paul reasoned with evidence. Laid it out in the synagogues. As the Lord Himself said through Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. So in this short amount of time, one of the ways that that Paul planted, laid down foundation and roots for the church of Thessalonica was that he reasoned with evidence. Secondly, and quite surprising for some, Paul reasoned with eschatology. That is... End times theology. If you had three weeks to start a church, what would you teach? What would be your curriculum? Much of Paul's curriculum was end times theology. Watch this. Turn your Bibles over to 2 Thessalonians. He's in Thessalonica, right? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Had such a great time on Sunday. I'll just tell you about this while you're turning there. In the New Believers class. And I rarely get to sit with just a small group of people around a table and ask questions and and talk about things. And my purpose there, the New Believers class has been going on for now now for several weeks. But I told Eric and Maureen Esker, who are leading the class, I said, look, if we're going to do this, I want one week. What do you want one week for? I want to talk about Revelation in the end times. With our New Believers, absolutely. Because New Believers need to hear that right up front. In fact, I would say it's absolutely foundational and fundamental to faith to go straight to the book of Revelation. I think it's a great opening book for someone who's never heard the gospel. Are you nuts? Yes, but that's not the point. Listen to this. Paul is writing now to this church in Thessalonica. This is a year, year and a half later, and he's writing in the second Thessalonians, the second letter he would write to them, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, now, we request you, brethren... With regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. Now stop right there. How much do I want to teach on this? We're going to get here. But Paul just said two things that are in times eschatological teaching right there. He says, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus, that is His second coming, and our gathering together to Him, that's the rapture of the church. Well, how do you know that? Well, because both are evident in Scripture. 
But he says with regard to both of these things, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure, or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord, that's the tribulation, has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness, that is Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now that's not the amazing part. What's amazing is what he says next. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Which means across three weeks, Paul was already covering this stuff with the brand new believers in the church at Thessalonica. Don't you remember this stuff, Paul says? The Thessalonians are concerned because someone's circulated a letter, some false letter, saying the tribulation has begun. We missed the rapture and we're now deep in the tribulation because they were having some tribulations, little t. They were afraid they were in the great tribulation. So Paul says, no, no, no. Remember what we talked about. What have they talked about? The rapture of the church. That is the church being caught up to meet Jesus in the air. He had talked about, obviously, the wrath to come in terms of the tribulation. He talked about the rise and the fall of Antichrist. He talked about the return of Jesus together with all his saints. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12 May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also for you, so that He may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Paul had covered all of these things, and now in 2 Thessalonians, he is simply reiterating what he had taught a bunch of brand new believers over three short Shabbats. What do you think? Is it important for a new believer to know where we're going? Is it important for a new believer to be grounded in the truth of the scriptures regarding the coming of our Lord Jesus? Is not that the blessed hope? Paul calls it that, Titus 2.13, the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We look forward to both of those. The blessed hope being... The rapture of the church caught up to be with the Lord. And the second coming of Jesus, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. And I'll tell you, we sat there on Sunday afternoon, started at 3 o'clock. I had to be home. I had a date with my wife, because I still think she's cute. I had to be home by like 5.30, and at 5.25, we're still going strong. That was a great afternoon. I do that every Sunday. The end times, eschatology. Paul believed, and I strongly agree, that the study of the end is necessary at the beginning of faith. What do you understand about where we are going? What what do you personally know about what is coming, about God's future plans? Are you grounded in these things? Or are you, like many, a little concerned when it comes to the book of Revelation? One of the greatest lies of Satan, as John Corson likes to point out, is that the book of Revelation is hard to understand. Not so. Not so. 
Why would God, first of all, even put it in the scriptures if it's just a big metaphorical, allegorical mash of nonsense? Is that the way God works? Is that how the rest of the Bible is presented? You think all of a sudden he's going to pop in a book just for fun to see if he can confuse us? He is not a God of confusion. And so he puts this in here, and yet some have relegated the study of these things to the fringe of the church. And it is a great tragedy. Because here we are at the end of the age, and we in the church today should know more about this than at any time in the previous church years across 2,000 years. We have had that long to study, to be aware, to know, to understand. And as a matter of fact, not only does the Bible make it fundamental to our faith to understand what is coming biblically, but God's Word bears a serious warning for those who would ignore it or deny the study of eschatology. Revelation 22.19 If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. I say this to the shame of pastors who will not go to the book of Revelation. How dare you, Rick? Because I was one of those pastors who for years avoided the book of Revelation like the plague. Why? Because I didn't want to roll up my sleeves and study it. So I figured, well, it's just, it's just hard to understand. And then Tim LaHaye came out with the Left Behind series. And I've told some of you I opened it up and started reading it just for fun, and I thought, no, this didn't. This isn't biblical. And then I opened up my Bible and I went, Oh, that is kind of biblical. (laughs) And I kept reading a little more. Well, that's not biblical. Oh, it is kind of biblical. I went through the entire series that way. And obviously, it's a a picture, it's an idea of what might happen. Planes crashing. The Bible doesn't talk about planes crashing when the church is raptured. We don't know exactly how it's all going to happen. But it's going to happen. And as I began to study, I started to realize, wow, I have no opinion on the book of Revelation. I was one of those guys who would sit down with a group of people and say, now there are four perspectives on the millennium. You could be premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, or just promillennial, which means you're all for it. That was me. (laughs) You could be pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, no-trib, you know, on a trib. I don't know. People... Sit down and the the professorial pastors will give you all the options and leave it to you to consider. I think that's just dodging the truth. We don't do that with the crucifixion. Jesus was crucified. He was pierced. He was nailed to a cross. We're very clear about that. But then when we come to the book of Revelation, we've got to give all the different options. You know what the option is in my mind? The literal interpretation of Scripture. What the Bible tells us is going to happen is the best of all possible options. Now, there are many options out there, and some in this fellowship probably hold a different view than me. (laughs) That's okay. Except that I would say, man, woman, study the Word to show yourself approved a workman who needeth not be ashamed. Know the Word of God. 
For those who fear to look into the final things, there are far greater things to fear. Besides, eschatology has has brought to me the greatest blessings in Bible study I have ever known. Talk to anyone who enjoys studying the end times and they just get giddy. You know, because it's so wonderful, it's so exciting. And Jesus told John, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Revelation 1.3, it's the only book in the entire Bible that comes with a singular blessing simply for reading the book. You want to be blessed? Read and study the book of Revelation. You will be blessed. So it's not surprising that Paul comes, you know, sailing into Thessalonica, Scriptures open, talking about Jesus, explaining Him from the Hebrew Scriptures, but taking the Thessalonians right up to the end. Yes, He came. Yes, He died. He resurrected. He ascended. But guess what? He is coming back. First, He's going to meet us in the clouds. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. He's going to call us up, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. He's going to take us home. We're going to be with Him. And then we're all coming back. And He will set foot on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah chapter 14 tells us. And He will rule and reign from Jerusalem. Countless Hebrew Scriptures and New Testament Scriptures confirm. And all of this is a thousand year millennial kingdom. Followed by New Heaven, New Earth, New Jerusalem, the whole book of Revelation. I could just do it right now. <laughs> and Paul taught all these things in three short Shabbats. He reasoned with them with evidence. He reasoned with eschatology. And thirdly, finally, and very important, gang, he reasoned with the engagement of the Holy Spirit. See, it wasn't just all Bible teaching. Valuable as that is. It wasn't just evidence laid out, important as that is and available as that is. It was the engagement of the Holy Spirit. That's how you plant a church in three weeks. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul said, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You see, the Spirit of Christ seals the deal. I often used to wonder... How could Paul plant a church and leave? And leave them just out there flailing? He didn't. He planted a church, taught the word, the Holy Spirit came upon those people, and they had a greater presence than the presence of Paul. So he could move on because now the Spirit is there directing and guiding with the Word of God. Three Sabbaths. We don't do what we're doing in our own strength. It is not incumbent upon you to teach the Bible and get it into someone's head so that they come to faith. It is incumbent upon the Holy Spirit to bring to faith. And those who try to do it, and we have far too much of this in the church today, trying to simply teach the Word or to act Christian or to to maintain this club without the Spirit of God. The Bible describes it as holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. 2 Timothy 3.5 How did Paul do it? The engagement of the Spirit is absolutely vital to the life of the church. The evidence, absolutely sound, and the eschatology, absolutely encouraging. And I tell you, my friends, these things are only off-putting to those who would put off the truth. Continue on, verse 5. But the Jews 
See, that's just a bad sentence right there. <laughs> Not the Jews part, but the but part. Anytime you put a but in Scripture. But the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some of the wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob. Oh, that's always a good thing, isn't it? And set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city's authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar. These are Jews saying this, by the way. Saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Let me be clear, the pledge is not a promise not to preach Jesus. The pledge is a bond. When they got money out of them, they received a bond, like a bail bond, so that they could be released. This is not the church caving. This is not the new believers giving up and giving in. This is just they made a a bail bond payment to get out of uh, of the prison, of the holding here. Now we don't know much about Jason except what we hear right here. We know one more thing in Scripture, that he became a true partner of the Apostle Paul. Romans 16, verse 21, says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. My kinsmen, Paul calls these guys. Why? Why Paul's kinsmen? Hey, anyone who would bear persecution for Jesus' sake is a kinsman of Paul. How about you? One of the things that draws us together, dear family, is that we together have a willingness in the heart to be persecuted for the gospel, to take the hits for the gospel. Jason was. It's funny, they show up to arrest Paul and and, and Silas and Timothy, and it says in verse 6, when they did not find them. So apparently they were tipped off and hightailed it out of there. Or they're in hiding. Paul always knew, by the way, when to hide and when to take the beating. Just in Philippi, he had taken the beating. Probably really wasn't up for it on this particular day. But he always seemed to know when to be where he needed to be. I think Paul had a great ear for the Spirit of God. But Jason and his family, Jason and those with him, are dragged off in front of the city authorities and become kinsmen of Paul, kinsmen of persecution. Would you be... A kinsman of persecution. If this were taking place in Oak Harbor or Anacortes or Bow or Coopville, would you be a kinsman of persecution? Now the Romans are stirred up politically because Roman law deified Caesar. Caesar was the God King. And now there's this other God King, this Yeshua, this Jesus. But the real issue here is not politics, it's religion, it's the jealousy of the Jews. And it's something we see occurring over and over and over in Paul's journeys, the Jewish people becoming jealous. That word is so connected to the Jews who who stood opposed. Now remember, everywhere Paul went, there were Jews who believed in Yeshua as Mashiach, in Jesus as the Christ. 
Everywhere he went, there were those who said, yes, we do believe. But there were also those who were stirred up, who were angry. And the word is jealous. Jealous. And this has always been a unique facet of God's overarching plan. Jealousy? Absolutely. To make Israel jealous. You can go all the way back to the Torah the teachings of Moses, prior to the people even coming into the promised land, listen to what Moses said, quoting the Father, actually God speaking through Moses the prophet said, Deuteronomy 32.21, they have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. Keep that, by the way, that little phrase in mind, provoked me to anger because of their idols. And then the Lord says, so I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. Who's he talking about? Gentiles. We were not a people. Peter said as much. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you had no mercy, now you have obtained mercy. Peter says, 1 Peter 2, 9. We're now a people. I love that. I can say, yeah, I got my peeps. (laughs) For those of you who are people persons, we we are a people. But we weren't. Not always. And the Lord says, I'm going to make Israel jealous. That far back, 1,500 years before Paul would write in Romans 11, verse 11, by the, Jewish, by the Jews' transgression, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. And that was not a new idea with Paul. He's just picking up on what Moses said in Deuteronomy 32. He's saying this is what God planned all along that ultimately when Messiah came some of the Jewish people would believe. In fact, the early church was all Jewish. You know that. But then as the Gentiles become, began believing many Jews who reject the truth would, would become jealous. What do you mean worshiping? He's our God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's my God, not yours. Gentile dog. Who do you think you are? Grafted in. What? Come on. And God said, that's how it's going to work. I'm going to make them jealous. And through that jealousy, if you wonder why God would do that, it's to woo Israel back. Because He understands how we think. Israel, you want to break up with me? Okay. Then I'm going to take on this new bride. It's going to drive you nuts. And in their jealousy, Paul says, God says, they will be saved. There will be a return. It comes right back around. I love the way God thinks. And Jewish jealousy is how Luke describes the uproar in verse 5. I like what they are shouting there in verse 6. These men who have upset the world have come here also. I think I mentioned this phrase earlier in our study of Acts. The phrase is literally, they have turned the world upside down. These men who have turned the world upside down are now here. Which tells us good news travels fast. The gospel moves. The AP is advancing the story. Reuters has picked it up and run with it. Word is spreading about the good news. These are the ones who are turning the world upside down, which is really right side up. Verse 10. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. 
And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of the prominent Greek women and men. Therefore, they believed. You know, whenever you see a therefore in the scriptures, you always want to go back and see what it's there for, right? <laughs> therefore, they believe. What? Wherefore? Wherefore did they believe? For they received this, the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. It's a reasonable faith. Paul brings it, he begins teaching it, and they examined it. And they considered it. And they worked it through. And as they did, faith came. Because it's a reasonable word. And it is cultivated by careful examination. Now, Dr. Bing Carson understands that. Listen, if you write a biography, then run for the presidency, prepare for the scrutiny. Unless, of course, you're a media darling, in which case there's no scrutiny at all. But let's not go there. Would you... Would you be noble-minded? Would you like to be a noble-minded... That is a blue-blooded Christian. Christian royalty I'm talking about. Like the noble-minded Bereans. Listen. Examine the Scriptures daily. If you would be noble-minded... Examine the scriptures daily. If you would be Christian royalty, study the word daily. Well, I don't know if I want to be royalty. I sure do. Why? Because the Bible tells me in 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with Him. And wherever He is, I want to be. The Bible says in Revelation 5.10 that He has made us to be a kingdom and priest to our God and we will reign upon the earth. So the idea of being royalty is already out there besides the fact that the more royal you are, the more crowns you have and the more crowns you have, the more you're going to have to worship with. Casting our crowns before the Lord in worship. Do you want to cast a crown or do you want to just cast one of those little hats with a propeller on top of it? That's all I got, Lord. I examined the Bible once in my lifetime. Casting crowns of royalty. Now, note the honesty of the Scriptures. One of the reasons I love God's Word, it tells us in verse 12 that many of them believed. That is, many of them, but not all. Go back to verse 4, it tells us some of them were persuaded, but not everyone. And that's the way it is. Two thieves hung on the crosses next to Jesus. One hurled insults at Jesus, while the other one defended Jesus and asked to be remembered when Jesus came into His kingdom. And of course, Jesus said in Luke 23, 43, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Some will believe, and some will not. Even like the thieves, even when facing the very punishment Jesus came to save us from, some will reject the gospel. It's remarkable to see a thief hanging on a cross, going to 
hell and still rejecting Jesus. And yet some do believe, as in the other thief, and was saved. It is unreasonable not to believe. It is wholly reasonable to believe and to entrust your life to Jesus Christ. Verse 13. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the Word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowd. What is up? Why is it that we continue to see people chasing down and fighting against something they say they don't believe? If you don't believe it, why are you fighting it? If it's not true... Why the battle? Why fear it? Well, let me encourage you all. If you stand on truth, nothing can take that away. So if a church of false prophecy gets planted across the street from us, and no, I don't have any idea that that's happening, but let's say it did, don't worry about it. We have the truth. Someone comes to town and they start preaching lies don't worry about it we have the truth well if they go on to the next town to start preaching lies we're not going to chase them down we have the truth it's absolute it's solid it's real David wrote in Psalm 25 verse 4 make me know your ways O Lord teach me your paths lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation for you I wait all the day Why are the Jews now chasing down Paul in the next city? Because they are rattled. Because they are unnerved. Because they feel threatened. Hey, faith in the truth is never threatened. I'm not threatened by someone's lies or deceit or false testimony. I'm not threatened when an atheist comes against the church. It doesn't bother me. I would hope for their sake that they would be reasonable. Verse 14. So the Jews come, they're chasing Paul down. Immediately, verse 14, the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea. And Silas and Timothy, remember I told you this, remained there. So Silas and Timothy stay at Thessalonica. That's That's a fourth thing, by the way, we could add as to how you plant a church in three short weeks. Okay, the evidence and the eschatology... And the engagement of the Spirit. And number four, you might just add this in here. It's not even in my notes. God just gave this to me. The encouragement of fellowship. The encouragement of other believers. Silas and Timothy will stay on for a bit in Thessalonica to teach a little longer, to be with the people longer. So that's a good thing, laying more foundation. And so we're told that those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens... And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. And now Paul is alone. Really, for the first time on this missionary journey, Paul is by himself. He had Silas at first to encourage him. And then Silas and Timothy, and then Silas and Timothy and Luke. Now, one by one, those guys are staying behind for the work, for the ministry. Paul is alone. And I really wonder if if we could get into Paul's head, what is he thinking? Is this one of those times when he's perplexed? 
Lord, it seems like every time it starts to go well, I get run out of town. I would love to stay with the folks. I would love to teach longer. But it's like I can get just enough foundation laid and then I'm gone. I think it's interesting that Paul would later in 1 Corinthians say, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. But I don't know that Paul has that understanding right now. I, I just know he's alone. He's been run out of two towns now, Thessalonica and Berea. And he's got to be perplexed. Remember Sunday we talked about, Paul said he got perplexed, just not despairing. He didn't always know what God was up to, but he didn't worry about it. The good news is he's making headway. It's frustrating that as soon as you start to make headway for the gospel, you meet opposition, which Paul does again and again. Let that be a lesson to you. If you begin to make headway with the gospel anywhere in your life, you're going to encounter opposition because Satan hates it. You ever think about that? Man, all I want is to see someone saved. How is that such a bad thing? I just want people to get redeemed. I just want to see people loved by God, know that they're loved by God. I just want to see salvation and sanctification and redemption. All these things are good. It's such a good message. The gospel, it's good news. And there's only one reason for the opposition, and that is Satan who is opposed to anything that God does, even the good things. He stands opposed. Well, what does Paul do? He presses on. 